thanks for joining me today. Um, let's start off a little bit. You know, I, I wanted to reach out because uh, and, and chat with you because I'm I'm highly fascinated by by history. I think you know when I when I growing up and looking back, I feel like. If I had to choose like history, besides obviously phys ed was probably my favorite uh, favorite subject in school. And I think I was fortunate enough to have a couple a couple teachers that really were good at it as well and, and can way they, the way they conveyed it, which really made it more engaging, I think. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've always really believed that you can learn a lot from history. And if you don't know the past, you are for sure going to repeat it. And so um, I appreciate you coming on today and, and chatting with me about um, specifically the, the presidents. Um, something that I think, you know, I, I feel like there's a lost, uh, a bit of a, a lost uh, knowledge when it comes to like civics and things like that in, in, in our nation in general. I don't feel like it's really taught that much these days. And so I appreciate you being here to kind of chat about this and hopefully some people may learn some things today. Um, and uh, yeah, so appreciate you. Why don't you start off just to, just real briefly kind of tell people a little bit about yourself, how you got into to history, you know, have you always been uh, kind of a, a geek on it or, you know, have you, have is it something that you've developed over time or yeah, just give people a little bit of background before we jump into everything. Yeah, thanks. It's a pleasure to be on here. Uh, I, like you, have always been really interested in history. Um, I've always been, from like a young age, a, a bookworm and someone who is really interested in reading the news. Uh, I remember when I was in college, I, I just took so many history classes because I thought they were fun. Then when it came time to graduate, they're like, you have a minor in history. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> I wasn't aiming for that. That's a funny accident. Um, and then after I graduated, my, my first career was initially in journalism. And one of the things that I, I liked about journalism is it felt like you were writing the first draft of history was the, the great phrase about journalism that I always really liked. So I, the, the reasons I like history is because it, it gives you so much perspective to things that are happening now. You know, you always hear people say like, this is the worst. This is the, the best. This is, you know, like the, the extra, this has never happened before. This is unprecedented. And you can look back and be like, Oh no, no, like th this, something like this has happened before, or the idea you're proposing, someone has tried something like that before. Here's uh, what happened. What can we learn from that? You know, it, it, and your own life, like all of us, we, we deal with our own struggles in life. And when you look at all the struggle that's happened in history, it just puts a lot more perspective on whatever you're dealing with, too. So it's it's a great humbleizer and, and makes you realize like, man, um, this thing I'm dealing with might be annoying, but oh boy, it could be worse. So these are all the reasons I've been attracted to history. And then what led me to my particular project, um, Abridged Presidential Histories is my podcast where I tell the story of each president in order, their successes, scandals, and, and uh, failures, um, each one in 60 minutes or less. And how I started on that journey is I was reading biographies of all the presidents. I thought that would be a real fun project, because like you said, there, there's a big gap in what we know about our presidents. I, this all started, I was having like a, I sitting at a bar with a friend, and I was like, hey, you know, it'd be a, a fun, very nerdy challenge. Let's see if we can name each president in order and three things they did. 
Wow. And you know, yeah. And you start off and you're like, okay, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, yeah, you know, or Adams. Look at me. I'm already yeah. missing one. Uh, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. And then, and then pretty quickly, you're like, ah. I was, was it John Quincy after that? And by the time you're at the late 19th century, you're like, okay, there were like a bunch of guys with beards. I don't know what any of them did. And and coming out of that, I was like, it would be fun to read a biography on every president to, to help fill this out for me. What, what, you know, these people at their time were viewed just as importantly as we look at presidents today. So what was happening? Like, like the, things were important were happening. Why aren't we talking about them? What were they? What can we learn from them? Um, and so I started reading these biographies and taking notes and then I launched the podcast because I'm someone, you know, former journalist. I love being a storyteller. Uh, and my day now I work in like program management for Nike. So I, I'm not telling stories the way I used to in my day job. So this is my way to get that hit of uh, storytelling. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I recently uh, caught a book was called uh, what was it? The maybe it was called The Reason or something like that. Um, it had to it was all about the Revolutionary War. Uh, the cause that's what it was called um, oh that yeah familiar. yeah um, and it really found i found it interesting because you sort of have this i don't know abridged glorified version of how the nation sort of started and yes. this book really went into like how it was such a struggle and how there was like you know, most of Washington's time was spent, it seemed like, retreating and moving around oh, yeah. and just surviving yeah. and trying to hold on to keeping enough people in the military to even continue the Revolutionary War. Like it was a yeah. very it's it it's a I sometimes feel like we get a glossed over sort of rendition of, of history. And I think it's yeah. important to have, you know, you know, people like yourself, even, you know, just out there kind of di doing the deep dive into this and have, you know, these kind of books uh, like the, the cause, um, you know, just to kind of really get into the nitty gritty and give the proper perspective uh, to it. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's let's kind of start off with uh, in the in the beginning, you know, uh, lead, leading into that, you know, one of the people that I think everybody recognizes he's, you know, is, is George Washington and his mm -hmm. accomplishments. And I think I think he was I think two things to me always stuck out about him. And that was one. And, and I have so much more a greater understanding as, a, as an older individual now, having done some additional <laughs> reading, you know, yeah. on, on what he actually struggled through before he ever became president. And to me, that mm -hmm. was probably one part of, of what really impressed me about him. And also just the fact that he was kind of in a position to where I think he could have like really grabbed power if he wanted to. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. and the restraint that he, or I don't know if he was wise or if he was just tired at that point or what his reasoning <laughs> was, but yeah. you know, the, the, not many people would walk away from, I can't think of a single politician that would have walked away from that today, you know, if they right. were in that situation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Washington is such a, an interesting character. Someone asked me recently, Kenny, if you could take any one president and make an HBO miniseries about them, who would it be? And I said, George Washington, because there's just so much more interesting uh, stuff to that story than people know. They, they just look at him. He's deified now. Right. He's deified. As he was the first president, the founding father. He can do no wrong. He's everybody loves him. 
no, everybody did not love him back then. You know, he was getting hate mail. There, people were like borderline writing on the streets at times, really unhappy with some of his decisions. His own secretary of state, Thomas Jefferson, was secretly organizing a political party to oppose him. You know, like he was not this universally blood figure. And the other thing is the United States was so vulnerable at the time, too. Like when, when he becomes president, he's the president of like the third world country at the edge of the map. Nobody cares about the United States. We, we could be blown over by a stiff wind. We just trashed our first government because it failed. You know, like, what are you doing? You are taking a huge gamble uh, on government number two. So th there's so much more inter interesting uh, stuff to a story than people say. And, you know, you're right. You talk about like, what what was he really? What was George Washington really? And again, this comes to these things that you can learn from history and, and the context, as I think of more beautiful picture than this untouchable, unobtainable, un, un, like nobody can ever be George Washington again. He was so perfect. This deification you need to get rid of that and need to realize that as first off, as a as a general. His one superpower was really not losing. It wasn't winning. Right. He didn't win many battles, no. but he was really good at running away, really good at retreating, really good at avoiding a fight, which was what you had to do back then, you know? And like, if, if people knew more about that of his history, like how would that change the national psyche and how we approach, you know, challenges and, and realizing that, okay, sometimes you can't just attack everything. You need to find the right moment. You know, you need to be opportunistic. You need to play with the resources you got. Um, and, and he struggled too. One of the, it's really funny, George Washington favored strong central government. Why did he favor strong central government? Because nobody gave him any supplies during the Revolutionary War. I mean, he's like, we all know about Valley Forge. He's sitting there freezing and starving at Valley Forge and the local farmers won't even sell him food because they're selling it to the British instead because the British have more money, you know? Like it's, it's just crazy the things he had to deal with. Uh, so yes, I forget what started me on that rant, but George Washington is, is like all these people in history, there's so much more contextualizing to them that make them more relatable and make them more human and more people that we can learn from that is lost. If, if you just remember your, uh, you know, what, what you learned in elementary school, which was really propaganda. That, yeah, that was propaganda yeah. to make you a good little citizen. You know, <laughs> you, you need to grow up at some point and, and grab a book and learn that next layer. And, and the, oh, shit, George Washington owned slaves. Okay, he freed them all, but he, he also, some ran away and he sent slave catchers after him. Oh, shit. Like, this guy's more complex than we give him credit, than, than we give him credit for. And uh, I think that's an important thing to capture. Well, yeah, I think too often, even today, we sort of idolize people or celebritize people. And it's, look, everybody's a human being and humans, sometimes we do great things and sometimes we do terrible things. And we try to yeah. find a, a good balance, I think, overall for, for humanity overall. But nobody's perfect, obviously. And right, right. Look, you know, I think a couple things that, that as you were going there kind of stuck out to me. One is, you know, the struggles with resources. And it made me think back. It made me think back to to um, right off the bat, the very first army the United States ever has. As soon as they get out of that, they don't they they kind of get just discarded, just like they you know today yeah. with veterans. Like it's continued. It started at the very beginning, and and they've never been given the resources or support. And I think that's a great point as to why he kind of supported yeah. that that more centralized government. 
Yeah, you know, the treatment of veterans in U.S. history is such an interesting thing. Um, starting from the Revolutionary War, the veterans who served, they were promised, they were given these like kind of promissory notes right. of land down the road. But it's worth nothing at the time. And so some of them sold that because they needed money now. And then when the United States won, it was suddenly worth a lot of money. And that was one of the first conflicts of should we uh, force uh, people who bought these promissory notes to give them back to the veterans or the veterans who sold their land for, for a little bit of money, but now it's worth more if they kept it like, should they, or is it just out of luck? And how we support that, like you go later, you go to the Civil War. You know, after the Civil War, you had all these veterans who are like, okay, I did not get paid enough. Uh, my friends who stayed home made a lot of money while I was in the Civil War. Like, what are we going to do? They ended up passing a giant bonus for those guys. It, it was actually the first Social Security program in U.S. history, effectively, was passed in the 19th century for Civil War veterans. Something to give them a, a stipend to live on, which, ironically, like this thing for Civil War veterans, it was paying off till just a few years ago. Like there was some, yeah, I know it's crazy. There was some Civil War veteran. I think it was like, if I remember right, it's the guy who fled the Confederate army, joined the union. So he gets the union stipend. When he was really old, he had a child and that child was, was a little bit disabled. So they got some of these benefits too. And they lived to be really old. And so, you know, there was like a 90 something or a hundred year old woman, like a few years ago who was collecting like $20 a month of civil war benefits. And she was the last person like, like that's what that looked like for the civil war after world war one. Again, these guys, they went off, they fought in world war one, they come home and they're like, man, all my friends who didn't get drafted made a lot more money. I am suffering. A lot of them were farmers, you know, and, and farming actually suffered a bit in the twenties, yeah. even though a lot of the economy was good. And they're like, where's something for me? I want something. So they eventually get again, another bonus bill passed of we're now going to get paid money later for the service during the war. It, you know, it's not until like FDR and the GI Bill and things like that, you start getting a more permanent, how are we going to support our veterans with education, with housing, with other benefits, with health care? You know, it, it took us over 150 years to figure that out. And there were so many other wars that, that came and went uh, like Mexican-American War. I don't think those guys got anything, you know, uh, war of 1812, man, like, no, they, they, they those guys did it get for anything. the fun of it. <laughs> yeah. They got, they got a story to tell, you know, like that, that's, that's it. So th there are so many things. It's so important. And this is one of those other things is government is never final. It's never static. It's never like the first solution. Wasn't the final one. We're constantly iterating and how can we better? How can we better serve our people? How can we address the challenges of today, the challenges we didn't see yesterday, the challenges we don't see coming tomorrow? And that's another one thing that history really teaches you that's valuable is you need to be flexible and willing to change and willing to look at what do we need today? What will we need tomorrow? Who cares what we needed yesterday? Um, that Those are the countries, those are the powers that survive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's very easy to say that we should either have a, a I mean, hey, dictatorships are very easy. There's one guy. He makes all right. the decisions. Uh, socialism, complete socialism in its purest form. Everybody's equal and everybody has everything. It's easy to think there's nothing to think about, per se. Democracy right. combined with capitalism, it's a complex system and it's always going to require 
the constant effort to keep like from going too far this way, too far that way, too far any which way, because you want to keep moving forward. And just, you know, it's, it requires a constant effort of checks and balances. And uh, I think that's something sometimes people forget about. They're like, well, we've been here for 200 years. We've had our, our, our democracy this whole time and it's fine and it's stable. And it's, it's, you know, it takes work like anything. It takes work. Yeah. The thing we should never forget is the United States uh, government was founded by a bunch of huge nerds who were obsessed with the Roman Republic. And they yeah. they got they built everything. They modeled it after the Roman Republic uh, in many ways, not perfectly, but in many ways. And we should always remember what happened to the Roman Republic. A dictator took over like it yeah. collapsed into an empire. You know, there's a quote, I think it's Winston Churchill or John, I can't remember who said it, but there was some, one of those early guys who said there, maybe it was John Adams. Um, there's never been a democracy that didn't commit suicide, <laughs> you know, and that was yeah. true. Like we, we were trying this form of government that had been discarded for hundreds of years because the early attempts at it had all collapsed into dictatorship. So you absolutely need to keep an eye on how is your government uh, meeting the needs of its people today and the people who are offering solutions, what do they really want? Because you also got to look out for um, the populists who are just using populism as a tool to become powerful. It's really weird. It's what, what do you do when the person who seems to be offering the solutions that will help everybody? And maybe these are really good solutions. But what if they're just doing that to take power and seize power and destroy democracy? How, how, how do you extract the solutions and, <laughs> and deny the poison? Um, so the, these are some of the challenges that democracies face. Yeah, you mentioned there that the first uh, the first few, you know, our forefathers were kind of a bunch of nerds. I would say I, I, Washington doesn't necessarily strike me that way, but certainly I think starting with Adams, maybe mm -hmm. Jefferson, Madison, and maybe up to the second Adams, uh, John Quincy. John Quincy, yeah. Maybe maybe that group are, are, is are, were, were they all kind of like just they were all kind of a little bit bookwormy, really into like the political nuances and the French system and the politics yeah. that was going on at that time. Um, do I have that kind of correct? Yeah, yeah, they were all huge nerds. It was su Roman history was such a fetish back then that Americans like um, the the most one of the most common ways to try to get your views out there. Uh, what today, you know, you go on the news and you give yourself like a 30 second interview on CNN or Fox or MSNBC. Like that's how you get your stuff out there today. Back then you did it by writing letters that you signed with a Roman pseudonym, right. you know, so it would be like Constantinus or Plutarch or, you know, I think Plutarch's Greek, my bad. But, you know, you'd sign it with like a, a Roman guy that everybody knew because everybody was reading Roman history back then. Uh, you, you talked earlier about George Washington. George Washington, you're right. He, he wasn't as book. Uh, nerdy. He didn't get the education that all those other guys got. And he always kind of felt a little insecure because of that. But he was still aware of the stuff because he was in the upper class and everybody in the upper class was aware of the stuff. And he very much, you mentioned stepping away from power, stepping away from ultimate control. Like, who does that? He was modeling himself over a Roman guy named Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus was a Roman consul who, uh, maybe not a consul, he was a Roman guy who was made dictator during a time of threat to the Roman Republic. The Rome was a republic, but they realized the threat was so bad that they're like, for this temporary moment, 
To defeat uh, yeah. the enemy who might destroy us, we need a dictator. Cincinnatus, you're a former general living on a farm. You're a farmer. Please come off your farm and we will give you total power, absolute power over everything to solve this problem. And then we really hope you go back to your farm. And he did. He yeah. came, he saved Rome, he went back to his farm. And then Rome got threatened again. He did it twice, twice. So George Washington was trying to be Cincinnatus. And when he stepped down from this chance of ultimate power, his officers, they formed a, uh, a, a like, I forget the exact name of it. But it was like basically the Fellowship of Cincinnatus in his honor. It's where we get the name Cincinnati. The city Cincinnati is an honor, an homage to uh, how George Washington had emulated this Roman hero Cincinnatus by stepping away from ultimate power when he could have seized it and letting a democracy grow instead. So, but yeah, to, to go to your point, these guys, the other ones, especially super nerds, they all studied, they all, uh, and in fact, it was their ult undoing at the end. John Quincy, you mentioned the last one of them. John Quincy studied in Europe. He traveled Europe he, with his dad. You know, his dad was a diplomat. So he came along and he studied Europe. He saw the world. And when he was president, he was like, hey, guys, I've seen what's happening in Europe. We need to step up our game. We need more universities. We need more public works. Like, you, you don't know what our competition's doing because you haven't been over there. I've seen it. If we want to be a mighty country, we need this development and investment. And the American people are just like, nah. <laughs> You know, he, he didn't know how to convince them. Right. And after that, you really have a relapse. Like he's followed by Andrew Jackson, the most like, ah, shucks, just the uneducated shoot from the hip backwoods American possibly ever, you know, uh, and, and, and then you start politics takes more of that direction with Jacksonian democracy. So, yeah, the early guys were a bunch of nerds. <laughs> and then we definitely pivoted pretty hard with Andrew Jackson. It's interesting. It, go, it goes through that group of people, you know, who are all, like you said, of this of this one kind of demeanor or, or one kind of uh, knowledge base personalities, maybe um, even Adams. I think he, he he even if I'm not mistaken, he I think he died like on in on in Congress or something. He like died at work. John Quincy, at John Quincy yes. I think like he was like the ultimate statesman. And then, yeah. like you said, after back to back to back to back to back people like this, we basically elected, I don't know, our first Trump. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, some would say that, you, you know, know, like a populist, like I was saying before, a populist. When when someone rises in democracy who just tells people what they want, you, you get these populist leaders sometimes. And democracy had going through a process of expanding then too. You know, when, when the, this first generation, when they founded democracy, they founded it for guys like them. You had to be a rich white guy who owned land. You know, it was not a broad voting base. They expected elections to be settled in the electoral college and, and electors to be picked by senators. You know, they expected this to be a, a basically an oligarchy. You know, they, they call it democracy, but it's going to be led by the elite only. Right. Everybody else is just along for the ride. And... Uh, in the early 18th century, early 19th century, apologies, you start to have an expansion of who can vote. You know, uh, let's may, maybe it, you don't have to own as much property. You know, maybe more guys can vote. Maybe we can let more of the poor people vote. Maybe electors are chosen directly. Maybe we're changing the way we elect our presidents. Excuse me. Maybe it's not the state Senate houses. Maybe we start trying other things, you know. And that 
is what leads to, you know, a populist like Jackson uh, getting elected. Uh, now, Jackson had also he'd been a senator. He was a successful, successful general. Uh, he'd been around D.C. So he had some affluent allies as well. You know, was was a bit of a it seems like from the very beginning, just disregarded things. Wasn't it during uh, it was yeah. it Madison or Monroe's presidency? He whichever one of them, one of them obtained Florida. And I think yes, he was told Monroe. not to go do it. And he was like, I'll just go take it by force. And then he was told not to. And he's like, ah. and he just did it anyway. And then came back in and was like, Hey, look what I did. <laughs> like a, like a yeah. dog, you know, looking for his reward. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, if, if I remember right, like he, he might've asked for permission and James Monroe just like didn't answer <laughs> or something like that. Or, and later there'd be arguments about was a, was a letter lost in the mail. His last orders had been, don't do it. And he did it. And some people were upset, but you know, possessions on tenths of the law. And now we have Florida. Um, yeah. Andrew Jackson was just a guy who did whatever the hell he wanted. He had he, he is someone that when he would be put in authority of places, he would regularly like throw people in jail and judges would be like, you, you can't do that. You're exceeding the law. This is dictatorial. This right. is this is you shouldn't do that. When he was down in Florida, he just summarily executed a couple British citizens because he thought they were supporting the Native American fi- folks he was fighting at the time. You know, it was almost a big international scandal. Uh, yeah, he. he He's one of these guys who he's just going to do whatever he wants to do. Doesn't care what anybody else has to say or what the rules written down are, which is another thing history teaches you is whatever the rules are written down, they don't really matter. That's one of the other crazy lessons of history is if you are popular enough, that's what matters. And you can do whatever you want. Um, That was potentially the lesson of January 6th, not too long ago. If you got people who will do things like it doesn't really matter what the rules are. What matters is what can you do? Yeah, that's all that matters. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You said, you know, he was the first Jackson was really kind of the first populist. And I think if I'm not mistaken, he kind of really changed his approach from how the other presidents before him had interacted and communicated with the general populace as where Mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, I think Jackson actually, you know, really was the first president to kind of go out and actually travel the U S to some extent. And actually didn't, didn't he also like just invite all the commoners to the white house for his inaugural party? Uh, He wasn't the first to travel the U S if I remember right, George Washington, I want to say traveled the U S although there were, there were fewer States then. So it was easier, you know, um, I, I could be wrong, but I think he he, he like went north and, and such uh, Jackson and, and Thomas Jefferson was another guy who certainly put on the airs of being a populist. He did a really good job at presenting himself as I'm just one of you. Like he's legendary for greeting visitors at the White House wearing a robe and slippers. You know, like <laughs> which the funny thing though about uh, him is that when people weren't looking, he, he he was like all about his French powdered wigs and he was a total francophile and like super wealthy and lived on debt and and in no way relatable to the average person. But he you know, he was born to what Jackson was a guy who was born poor. He was like an orphan when he was a kid. He and in the Revolutionary War as a child, he'd been captured and, and slashed by a British uh, person in prison. You know, uh, he'd been a hooligan when he was growing up. Like he, he's kind of one of these guys that came up from nothing. That certainly he's the one of the first presidents that came up from nothing, and he realized as the voting rolls expanded 
And just through the experiences he had in life, he is one of the people that realized if you have a mob behind you, the rules don't really matter. So that's why he opened up and that's why he really catered to people. You know, he really uh, catered to what are the uh, sentiments of what people want. If, if I have enough people that want something and they're willing to show up for it, then we can probably get it. Uh, and he did. He opened up. Uh, he invited people along. He, he showed up for folks. He was people felt like he was touchable, like he was tangible, like they could see him. He, he felt more like them than John Quincy certainly ever did. Yeah. Do you think his under or his his previous experience of growing up, maybe not being as uh, educated or experienced with, you know, um, the nuances of economy? Do you think that's what kind of led him to have such a, a disdain for the central bank and the treasury? I, didn't he didn't he veto yeah, didn't he veto that which kind of like tanked the economy right after he he left office pretty much? Yeah, yeah, it's so funny. Early American history, you're reading it and you're like, why do they keep talking about banks? <laughs> it's nothing but fights about like, well, we have a central bank. What should our tariff policy be? You're like, wait, where's the exciting stuff? This is all really nerdy. Do I have to write? Yes, I do have to write about this because this was like the biggest issue of the day. But so, so in a sense, some things don't change. Americans have never liked banks, have never liked bankers. We've always been suspicious of them. And back then, you know, in large part, uh, people who, like, like you mentioned, he, he grew up, you know, poor. He grew up a hardworking American, uh, doing whatever he could. And, and folks like that, when they went into town, they saw the bankers with all this wealth. And they're like, your hands are clean. You know, your clothes are clean. What work are you doing? My hands are dirty because I'm in the field digging. I'm working in the shop. My clothes are all covered in soot or dirt or grime and sweat. Why are you making money? It just doesn't make sense. So there is always this baked in resentment toward bankers. And, uh, you know, banking is also kind of hard to explain. You know, there's a lot of like uh, the interests and this and that and the other. It's it's very easy to be kind of out of touch and, and be like, oh, I just don't want to think about that. That's complicated. So when you're trying to explain what's the value of a bank, a lot of Americans never got it. And when you had the first parties pop up, you know, uh, Hamilton versus Jefferson, one of the core issues was the first bank of the United States, you know, should it exist or should it not exist? Um, and the reason that some folks felt it should exist is that if you have uh, a bank, it can develop credit and it can it can show that it's good at paying off loans and then you can borrow more money. And the Americans got who learned this, they learned this by looking at the British and being like, how are the Brits paying for their empire? How are they paying for all these wars? Oh, they're borrowing money. They're borrowing a lot of money. How are they borrowing money? Because they have a bank. Oh, maybe we should do that. You know, so there is a push for the bank. But as I said, a lot of people resented banks. A lot of people didn't like banks. Uh, sometimes banks make mistakes. Sometimes banks give loans to the wrong people and then those loans fail. And then you have an economic crisis and then you're blaming the banks because you're like, I can't sell it in my food because the bank messed up and it gave loans to the wrong people and the economy just collapsed. So you had this real tension for like the first hundred years of should there or shouldn't there be a bank? Um I'll get to Jackson's in a second, but the first bank of the United States, interestingly, was killed by one of these guys we talked about a second ago. Um, I believe it was James Madison. Well, James Madison was president. His party opposed banks. And 
it got killed on his watch. He, he basically stayed out of the fight. He campaigned on killing the bank and then he became president. He realized it's kind of important. So he stayed out of the fight and Congress killed it. And then we went to the War of 1812 and we're fighting England and we're like, OK, how are we going to pay for this war? Well, uh, we have a few sources of money. One is tariffs from trade. But we had just self-imposed an embargo. So we were not having any trade. Plus, Britain controlled the seas anyway. So we have zero tariffs. Great. OK, no revenue there. Um, well, the bank. Uh, no, we just closed the bank. We can't take any loans out. OK, we can't get money from the bank. Uh, taxes. Our party's fundamentally opposed to taxes. Like, it was a crisis. How do we pay for that war? Right. After the war, they created the bank again. <laughs> they were like, that was a huge mistake. Let's reopen the bank. And then you get to Jackson. and and But still, people are like, oh, you reopened the bank. That was a terrible idea. So Jackson kills it again. And um, and yes, it, it hurts the economy. Jackson also did some other things. The way he was trying to uh, get certain currency, like the way he was playing with currencies didn't help either. Um, there was no uh, like states had their own notes back then, you know, and he, he was trying to tinker around with that. Jackson started moving all the money from the U.S. bank to these regional banks. And then the region and that, then the regional banks were making the same bad loans that the central bank was. But the regional banks were less disciplined. So worse loans were being made. And, and another crisis happened anyway. So, yes, uh, he opposed the bank. Banks are hard to understand. They're important. We eventually found a different solution. Does this new solution work? Now we're with the Fed. We don't have a bank of the United States anymore. We have the Fed. The Fed can adjust interest rates. But it, like we still had these cycles of boom and bust. We've had the Great Recession. You know, we've still seen other things. Is this the right solution? I like, like I said, you have to keep looking for a better solution. Just because we have the Fed doesn't mean it's necessarily the right solution and the perfect one. Is there a better one out there? So that was a, a quite the rant in response to your thing about banks. Yeah, no, I like I like that. It's a good way to put it. Uh, you know, again, it's it's a thing of constant improvement. One last thing I, I would throw in about Jackson is famously he he was not afraid to throw down and duel. I think he had well, yeah. I don't know how many duels he was in, but he I think he had like two, 10 or 12 bullets like in his body when he died. Right. That were like lodged in him in different places. Yeah, I think he had at least one or two in him. Others had probably passed through him. He had fought in many duels and, you know, been in conflicts. He was like old Andrew Jackson looks like a creature from a movie that you'd expect would be evil because his body is just like he's racked with pain from all these war wounds. And and like he, he's just constantly hurting. He's crippled. He, you know, it hurts to move. Everything just just hurts all the time. He has a bullet in him. There, there's some speculation, if I remember right, that one of the things that killed him might have been lead poisoning from a bullet that had been sitting oh, in his wow. body for so long, you know. Um, yeah, he, he threw down. He fought a lot of duels. He was absolutely crazy he just loved to fight you know that was his reaction which is another lesson of americans is americans love a fighter yeah. if you say you'll fight for people they like that they, they like that in their politicians you know um and and jackson boy did that guy love to fight especially if you said anything negative about his wife he said anything bad about his wife he was just going to challenge you to a duel right there and like let's go Let's go now over there. I got my gun. Let's fight. You know, he was involved in a shootout once walking through towns. This wasn't even a duel. He's just walking through town. He sees a guy he doesn't like. They start shooting each other like in the Wild West. And what's crazy is the guy he was shooting at. That guy later becomes a senator and they work together. Wow. Like He's the president. The other guy's a senator. Uh, I want to say his name was Benton. Uh, senator Benton. He's like a senator from Missouri. And yeah, like the United States was crazy back then. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, to say the least. Yeah. yeah. Uh, moving, moving on, like from, yeah. from Jackson into, uh, the next group, you know, none of them really, really stand out to ever stood out to me too much. I feel like this group kind of gets lost over a little bit until you get to Lincoln, mm -hmm. but, yeah. uh, I don't know. Is there anything in there that like was, was like that, th that group did, I, I think they, they sucked yeah. so bad, <laughs> like there, when I was reading through those presidents, a lot of expansion, I was like, right? That was kind of their main thing. That was expansion of territory. Some more expansion. James K. Polk was all about expansion, and he's the one who did most of it. James K. Polk uh, fought the war with Mexico, which captured Texas and the whole American Southwest, and he negotiated the Oregon Territory Purchase uh, or split with Great Britain. After that, you basically had modern boundaries, and, and Polk's a really interesting guy because he serves just one term. And he goes in and he says, like, there's four things I'm going to do. He does all of them and then he quits and then he leaves and he walks away. And it's just like, wow, that was a really efficient president. Now, he, he gets uh, that doesn't necessarily mean he's he's a, a, a good or a great president because how he accomplishes those things is a lot of um, lying <laughs> about stuff, a lot of sneak like he, he engineers this war with Mexico um, so we can capture the whole American Southwest. How does he do this? He well, the United States had finally annexes Texas. And when we annex Texas, there's a dispute. Where is the boundary between Texas and Mexico? Right. You know, Texas claims it's the Rio Grande, which it is today. Mexico claims it's the Nuechas River, which is several hundred miles north of the Rio Grande. Okay, well, we should figure this out. How should we figure this out? We should probably be really delicate. Be really careful. Let's not do anything to like heighten tensions. No. Polk puts an army on the board on the Rio Grande River, like into this contested land. And he, like he just marches it right into land that Mexico says is theirs. And then he's just like, come on, come on, do something, Mexico. And eventually there's a fight. And then Polk's like, they killed American boys on American land. It was contested land, you know. Abraham Lincoln is a congressman at this point, and he's like, "Show me the spot on the American map where this blood was shed. Why are we fighting this war?" Um, so that was Polk. I think he was uh, the only one to vote against the the that war, wasn't he? As a there were more. It it he was one of the few. He did lose his seat in Congress for opposing the war because it's very dangerous to oppose uh, an American war when you're a politician. Um, we talked about John Quincy Adams dying on the floor of Congress earlier. He opposed the war. He was like one of the true ringleaders against the war. And the way he died, because he viewed this as a war to expand slavery. This is really the issue. All these guys, Polk's dealing with expansion. Everybody else is dealing with slavery. What do we do about slavery? And they all make terrible decisions <laughs> is what that next group of presidents is. And so we, we declare this war. We're going to get all this land. And uh, John Quincy is like, we're just getting all the southern land so that the slavery slavers can create more states and they can increase their power in Senate and in Congress. And then they can force slavery back on the north where it's been abolished. Like he viewed it as a power play wow. by slavers. And so even at the end of the war, like we're, we're having a vote to honor the generals for winning the war. You know, like the most, of course, thank you, generals, like a, like the most no duh thing. And they do a voice vote. Who supports this? Everyone says yes. Who opposes it? And John Quincy Adams like, I oppose this. And he stands up to, to talk about why he opposes it. And then he has a heart attack right there in the middle of his protest vote. And he gets taken to the House Speaker office and he dies there in the Capitol protesting the expansion of slavery. But that was the real issue all these people are doing. First, there was a little expansion through Polk. You know, you have after Jackson, you have Martin Van Buren, 
Uh, and then Martin Van Puren loses to William Henry Harrison. William Henry Harrison dies 30 days later and he gets replaced by Zachary, Ta- uh, not Zachary Taylor, uh, John Tyler and John Tyler it wants to expand. He wants to expand into Texas and he spends his whole administration trying to make that happen. Uh, James K. Polk, and actually, and he makes like the last day of office, he makes it happen. James K. Polk then starts this war. He gets this land. And when he gained all that land, like this is when the road to the Civil War starts, is that this whole group of presidents, they are the road to the Civil War because we have all this land. And now we have to figure out to do what to do about the slavery question. Is slavery allowed in this land? Is it not allowed in this land? Who's deciding this stuff? How do we decide this stuff? And uh, you have people come up with ideas like, well, well, we'll just let uh, the territories vote if they want slavery or not. And that, oh, that's democratic. That seems like a great idea. Let's let them decide. But the problem is that then people from other states start coming in and killing each other because they want to make sure the state goes their way. And now you have these like mini civil wars like Kansas, bleeding Kansas happens in the 1850s. Several presidents are involved in that just terrible mess. Uh, and the last of this group of presidents before Lincoln is James Buchanan. James Buchanan becomes president. Like the country, everybody realizes the country's on fire. We've been mishandling the slavery question. People are fighting each other, killing each other in Kansas. Everyone's unhappy. The South is very antagonistic toward the North and the North toward the South over the slavery question. James Buchanan is one of the most experienced people ever elected president. Surely he's going to save the day, right? No. Before he's even president, he tempers in a uh, Supreme Court case, the Dred Scott decision, which that might sound familiar to you. He calls up, uh, if I remember right, the chief justice, if not, it's one of the justices on the court. And he tells the justice like, hey, I want you to give me a definitive ruling on this. That's going to end the question of slavery forever. And uh, I'd, I'd like it to go like kind of a certain way. And the judge is like, sure. And so in James Buchanan, his inaugural address he pretends he has no idea how this case is going to go. And he says, we should just accept whatever the Supreme Court rules, and that will be the end of it. And then the Supreme Court rules that black people can never be citizens. That's what the Dred Scott decision says. Black people can never be citizens. They can never be free. And that blows up in his face. It it just ratches up the tension higher. Uh, And by the time Lincoln's getting elected, you know, and, and some of this goes to news sources too, the Southern news sources were telling their readers that if Lincoln gets elected, he's going to take away all your slaves. He's going to end slavery. Your, your society will be destroyed. Your women will be raped. Uh, your money will be taken away. You'll be forced to give your land to these black people who are your slaves. You'll, you'll have to bow to them in the street. You know, like it freaks these people out. And so they secede and the Civil War starts. That's what that group all does. They just keep making bad decisions. And this shows like what this group really shows you is how important presidents are are to the unity of the country and how bad presidents can feed into discord. And if they make the wrong decisions, like you didn't have to necessarily have the civil war. There were other countries that got rid of slavery without a civil war. Now it would have been hard because of the way it's split up on the map and how important it was to the South. Maybe maybe you did have to have a civil war, who's to say? But the reason you had the Civil War when you had it, the reason it played out the way it played out is because we had a series like 20 years of presidents who are making bad decisions from let's let's annex Texas. Let's go to war, get all this land. When you get all this land, it reopens the question of are slaves allowed in that land or not. And then successive presidents making terrible decisions about what to do, ratcheting up tensions. 
antagonizing the sections against each other uh, until eventually you do have a civil war. So like that's that whole bundle. Yeah, I mean, I think I think, uh, you know, as you mentioned, like each one of them, it's it's uh, Zachary Taylor was a slave owner. Funny thing about Zachary Taylor, Zachary Taylor was the most pro North anti-slavery president of them. But then he also died in office and he got replaced by Millard Fillmore, who didn't own slaves, but was one of the more pro Southern guys, because everybody started realizing one of the reasons they made these bad decisions is uh, because of the two thirds clause in the Constitution uh, inflated the power of the South. And so all these guys who become president, they realize they're not going to win re-election. They're not going to get anything done without Southern support. And the only issue the South cares about is slavery. You know, I was going to say each one of them, like progressively, it felt it seems like from from Taylor, Fillmore, Pierce, Mm -hmm. and they're all like pro basically pro slavery, I think. And then and then, as you said, Buchanan comes in and he's. Uh, he just, he doesn't, he doesn't make uh he just says, well, this is what the law is. And, and like you right. said, it, it, he just, you know, whatever, this is I, my yeah. hands are tied kind of thing. And then, and then obviously that leads right into, to Abraham Lincoln and, and, and that, and, and everything that he dealt with, which was a tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, situation to have to deal with. And it, you know, yeah. really cost him uh, probably everything in the long run. Yeah. His life. Yeah, it was uh, um, with with Abraham Lincoln. Um, he was was he the first president to be assassinated? Yeah. yeah, yeah, he was not the first attempt. Someone did try to kill Andrew Jackson. Their pistols jammed, of course, <laughs> and then Jackson beat them with a cane because that's Andrew Jackson to a T. Some, of course, he'd be the first one someone tried to kill, and of course, he would personally beat the person with his cane when they failed. Um, no, Lincoln is the first one to be assassinated. Uh, there had even been prior attempts on his life before the one that succeeded. He had to be smuggled into the Capitol. Um, if I remember right, disguised as a woman <laughs> to to take office um, to to be sworn in because he had to pass through Maryland and Maryland was a slave state and people were afraid that the people of Maryland might kill him. Um, he was the first one to be assassinated. And then there were more after that, for sure. I've always I've always felt like from from what I've read that he sort of maybe had this feeling that like, you know. I'm probably going to die. I'm probably going to get taken out. Like he didn't seem like a, like, yeah. Hey, we won the war and things are good. Now it seemed like, uh, uh, there was just this, all, always this, uh, foreboding when it came to, to Lincoln and how he, he kind of viewed things from what I've read, but. Yeah. He, he was also a guy. It's funny. Cause when you, when you hear stories of Lincoln, you hear greatest president ever, really good sense of humor. That's usually what you hear about him. But he was also a guy that suffered from depression, right? which is another one of these important stories because people suffer from depression today. And if you can tell them, so did Lincoln, that, you know, that's kind of like, oh, oh, yeah, that's kind of good context to have. Yeah. And so I, I do think he, he had this sense of uh, foreboding and uh, how could you not? I mean, just how could you not? If he didn't think about it. Someone might try to kill me, you know, I, I I just imagine it must have passed through his, his mind at times. And, um, you know, one of the sad ironies is the, 
What gets Lincoln killed? What happens is the Civil War is basically won. We've captured Richmond. Lincoln goes out and he gives a speech. And in this speech, he says, you know what? I freed the slaves. We've won this war. I think that the African-Americans who served in the army, they should probably be allowed to vote. I think we should give black people the vote. And in the audience is John Wilkes Booth. And he's like, no. <laughs> and so he kills Lincoln. You know, like that's one of the last speeches Lincoln gives. And that's the trigger of his demise. Uh, so much of our history is wrapped around that. Yeah, I've I've, uh, I've heard a lot of con- obviously a lot of little conspiracies around John Wilkes Booth and uh, how that uh, who he might have been tied to that there might have been either ties to um, who was the civil, the South uh, uh, leader at that time, the president that was in hiding. Uh, Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis. Might, there might have been a conspiracy there or that even some of Lincoln's own people, own, own people in Washington, D.C. may have like been kind of like Andrew Johnson's kind of been mentioned, I think, as someone who may have tried to been involved to, to cede the power. But yeah, I don't I, know. I'm one who generally doesn't believe conspiracy theories my i'm generally like whatever the easiest explanation is the most obvious is that's probably the true one you know right Um, now every now and then one proves true and then you're like well shit (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah with with lincoln i think it's it's fairly clear cut that john wilkes booth kills sometimes it happens it's one of the things is uh, humans we struggle with how random history can be sometimes, you know, it's hard to believe that history can change so much just because one guy, one person, one otherwise meaningless and significant person decided he wanted to kill somebody. And it's like, what? U.S. history turned on a dime because of that? Like, really? There's got to be more to it. Sometimes that's all there is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Even if, if you go back, even th- thinking even further back in history, how, how fleeting life has been and how frivolous Ooh. people have taken it just to change that sh- dynamic of power and shift the course of history. Um, mm-hmm. You know, back when we were much less civilized um, than, than we hopefully are today. Yeah. <laughs> Um, moving, moving, moving on. I, I think, you know, I don't know much about Johnson, except that he was, I think, a drunk. Uh, but <laughs> Johnson was, was, uh, one of the first stories, one of the, the first introduction, one of the first introductions, the United States at large got to Andrew Johnson was on, uh, inauguration day when Abraham Lincoln wins re-election and it's time for Andrew Johnson to get up and give a speech. Right. And Andrew Johnson was sloshed. He was so drunk. He made no sense. He was slurring his words together and everybody on the stage behind him was just like, Oh my God, what have we done? (laughs) So yeah, he could drink a bit. Um, That his real problem was that he was an insecure prick who Grew up very poor, but always feeling like at least I'm better than black people. What wasn't he an indentured servant? Yeah, he was at one point. He yeah. was in, in his childhood. He and he ran away from it. He was at one point an indentured servant to a tailor, if I remember right, and he ran away. He he's one of the true like from nothing to the presidency guys in U.S. history, and yet. Uh, because of where he came from and what he was taught, he, so much of his self-worth was from a young age and at least I'm better than black people. At least I'm better than slaves. 
And so when he's now put in charge of reconstruction, A, he's also really resentful against like rich white people in the planter class. So like during the, that's why he was the only Southerner to support the North during the Civil War, like the only Southern senator, because he resented the planter class and how they treated him. But now after the war, he also resents black people. And so he did everything he could to hurt the freedmen and set them back um, to to the point of getting impeached, uh, surviving the Senate barely by, you know, Impeachment's a very broken process, by the way, talking about things that are wrong in the system. He basically uh, bought off senators to uh, survive impeachment. Um, But he these were the things that made him a bad leader, the hatred in his heart and his inability to see human potential in people he resented. So we really only had one. Was it was was Grant the only president that really sort of embrace tried to embrace reconstruction because didn't Hayes right after Grant kind of like cut off or, or put the kibosh on, on reconstruction? Yes. Yes. And no. Uh, yes. In terms of effectively, who was effective at doing reconstruction only Grant. And uh, he, I mean, he destroyed the first Ku Klux Klan. The Klan was dead for like 45 years after he was done with them. He invented the, I want to say the Justice Department he created to help fight white supremacy in the South. He sent soldiers down there. Like he did a a lot of huge changes uh, because he generally believed like he, he, I feel like when Grant came into office, he had a bracelet on his wrist that said, what would Lincoln do? You know, like that was the the kind of how he started. Um, But he had also been someone who had always opposed slavery based on his experiences and how he grew up. Uh, there was one, he married his wife. He briefly uh, got a slave uh, at some point. I think like an old army buddy maybe gave him a slave. I forget where he got it, but he at one point had a slave. I, I heard, I heard the, the story. I heard how he got, it was, this was his only slave is what I heard is, yes. is the story I heard. And that he often would spar with his father-in-law about slavery yes. and that on their wedding for their wedding gift, the father-in-law gave him this slave as their wedding <laughs> gift to like spite him. It might be. I can't remember how he know, got it. It's a good it. story, I guess, but I don't it, know if it's it also, true. <laughs> like, it might be one of those things, maybe nobody's sure, but yeah. he set the guy free. In yeah. an era when, and he was dirt poor. He was so poor that like he was out on the street corner in his old war outfit selling wood, penniless. And instead of selling a slave, and you could get a year's wages from selling a slave. You could have gotten thousands of dollars. Instead of doing that, he set the guy free, you know? So like that is showing Grant's character um, early before he's anybody. Like he's, he's, he's a nobody, a poor beggar soldier who's gotten a lot of bad breaks and is reduced to selling wood on the corner to try and take care of his family. Um, and when he becomes president, he is, he really picks up the fight and he views this fight's not over. You know, what was the Civil War about? It's about a more perfect union and freedom and democracy for all. And what's happening in the South is not that. And we need to address that. And he spent his whole time trying to address it. Toward the end of his term, he did start um, removing some of the soldiers from the South. And uh, I can't remember if his hand was kind of forced on that or not. But that leads to Hayes, who you mentioned. When Hayes gets elected, it's a very, very close and controversial race where you have contested electors from certain states and you have real danger of another civil war of the South not accepting this. 
and a compromise is made where Hayes uh, supporters tell supporters of the Southern guy. I want to say that guy's name was Tilden, but I could be wrong. Um, and they say, hey, Southerners, if you let Hayes get elected, if you just let this happen, we'll remove the last troops from the South and we'll let you do what you want. And they say, sure. And so that ends it. Now, later presidents would try to pass laws and they would try to do things. It just wouldn't get anywhere because you still have the filibuster, which is starting to be used to squash these laws. And you still have it's still the number one issue in the South. Um, you have Benjamin Harrison. He's one of these forgotten bearded presidents of the late 19th century. And uh, Benjamin Harrison tries to pass laws to protect uh, black African-Americans in the South and enfranchise them and all that. And what happens is the Southern Democrats in Congress, uh, who at that point, that was the conservative party, the Democrats were, they basically tell the Republicans, look, we'll help you pass everything you want if you help us oppose this. We'll give you all the other goodies. We will give we will give you the barn if you help us block him on African-Americans. And they do like the South was just so dedicated to it that other presidents try as they might could not get anything done. Um, and so that was kind of one of the stories of, of the late 19th century and those presidents and why civil. And, and so then so they stopped trying. You know, they realize it's just not going to happen. I'm going to spend my political capital on it. It's not going to happen. Let me spend my political capital somewhere else, helping other people some other way. Touching back on on Grant just a second. One of the things that other that I, I've heard and I, I think it's true, but didn't he end up after his presidency? Didn't he end up kind of uh, losing all his money and was basically poor again <laughs> yes. and, and had to like Mark Twain sort of helped him write a yeah. book that. Yeah. That I think he basically just barely completed before he died yep. and it set up his his wife was taken care of. But like he kind of died broke, more or less. Yeah, you got all that right. Kind of sad. Got all that right. Yeah, it, very sad. He uh, after the presidency, he was like one of the most popular people in the world. He was traveling around. He had all these people want to do business with him. Uh, Grant's problem was always picking the wrong friends. And so he picked the wrong friend to go into business with. And the guy he went into business with, uh, the, the way the business worked was Grant was the front. He was the face and he was out there like making friends and getting money in. And then his partner was supposedly investing this money really wisely and making profits. And, you know, look at the books. The books say we're getting amazing returns. This is great. And then one day that partner just like if I'm, he like ran off like with the money or something like it, there's there's literally a day where Grant's son, who's also part of the business, walks into Grant's office and is like, our partner's gone and we have no money. <laughs> and Grant is like, oh, <laughs> and that's it. And they, they, there's no protections back then. You know, there's right. no laws protecting uh, you if this happens to you. And so he suddenly has zero money and he goes to broke. And so he, he does. He befriends Mark Twain. He writes his biography as he's dying of throat cancer because Grant loved to smoke cigars, loved to smoke cigars. So he's dying of this really painful throat cancer. And and it's so terrible. Like reporters are just like showing up at his doorstep waiting for him to die. Like, is he dead yet? No? All right. Well, maybe, maybe later. Like, <laughs> just terrible. And um and, and his biography is considered like the gold standard for political, military, presidential biographies. Uh, like any president later who tried to write a biography, like, like Eisenhower, when Eisenhower writes his biography, he gets his people together and he's like, this is Grant's biography. 
we want to emulate this. Like it, it is the gold standard for wow. recounting. You know, it, it was it's so well written. Um, I read it when I was younger. It's it's a really good book. Um, but yeah, he a very sad end for. And then after he dies, his political enemies, you know, as part of this lost cause myth, the, the Southerners who resent him so, they paint a new picture of him. When he died, he was a hero of the Republic, one of the biggest funerals, one of the most beloved people. And over the next like hundred years, he was turned into this drunk who could, who was super corrupt and could do nothing right. You know, like that's the revenge of him at home. I almost feel like there was this, this, uh, impression that I was given when I was younger that the reason he, he, he was broke at the end was because he was a drunk. And, and, you know, as you dig into it, it's not really the case at all. (laughs) Yeah. It's not really the case. Um, you know, there's one point early in his career where he got uh, fired from the army in a Western post. This is pre-civil war. He's out in California at a time when nobody lives in California and you're in the middle of nowhere. And like, what are you going to do with your time? Uh, and he, he he tried several business ventures and failed. And he, he might have gotten drunk there. Like, no, there's no record of why he was fired. Right. He was just fired. <laughs> and so maybe then. But the rest of his life, like, there's no record or evidence that he was uh, an, an alcoholic or an abusive drinker. Yeah. Yeah. Move, move, moving on from him and, and kind of going into the next and, you know, stop me if I'm skipping over anybody that's like important yeah. or has anything interesting. But the next one that really kind of strikes me is Teddy Roosevelt, like as a, yeah. as a, as, as kind of a change of, uh, of what we have had up to that point. Uh, again, another, another standout, um, Huge change. Kind, yeah. kind, of, kind of a guy who, who my understanding is he, he was pretty weak as a kid, had some ail, health yes. ailments and, and basically yeah. like just forced himself into being a, a rough and tumble guy and really made his, his, his mark as a, as a, as, as an outdoorsman and a, and a fighter to, to a large extent. Teddy Roosevelt is really interesting to me. Uh, all the things you said is true. He, he was an asthmatic when he was a kid. He needed glasses. Uh, he, he was wimpy, but his, he was super into trying to prove his manliness through toughness. And so like he would box and he tried to play football and like all these things, you know, and, uh, and he came from tremendous wealth. Like he might've been one of the wealthiest people to ever become president. Certainly the wealthiest since like Thomas Jefferson, like he just, he had so much money to do whatever he wanted. Where, where did his money come from? Uh, like his grandfather or great grandfather, his family had been in New York for generations and uh, you remember earlier, we were talking about Andrew Jackson. He sticks around with the banks. And then there's this big depression. During that big depression, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's answer, ancestor made some smart investments and suddenly built a company, like a window glass company. And he made a fortune. And so that's where Theodore Roosevelt's wealth came from, is, is he had an ancestor who did the right, like when the economy's low, you know what they say, buy low, sell high. His grandfather bought low and it worked out really well for him, you know. So that's where all this money comes from. And uh, that gives him the freedom to kind of just have these crazy adventures and be this character. Like we all love him because of the crazy stories about him. He was so charismatic, you know, like he ran off and he was a rancher for a while, you know. The, the, the things that you don't see about him is like he was a failure at a rancher. And why, why did he become he became a rancher? It's really sad. 
he he marries the love of his life, a woman named Alice, and she's pregnant and she's going to have a child and she dies during childbirth. And it's the same day his mother dies in the same house. His mother and his wife die on the same day. And he, yeah, his diary is just the letter X that day. The light has gone out of my life. It's, it's so sad. And how he responds to this is he gives his daughter to like his sister. And then he just like books it out to the Dakotas and buys a ranch and decides to be a rancher for a few years. Like he abandons everything. He abandons his child. Like it's, it's like we love Theodore, but there's these, all the, there's those also parts of his life that when you look at him, you're like, wait, you did what? Again, complex, complex humans, you know, very complex human, very complex human. Like his daughter's fascinating, by the way, she gives the best quotes about everybody. She ends up growing up with a sharp wit. She's like an American princess because she's also, you know, got all the wealth and stuff. Uh, but like he can, he can't even bring himself to like say her name because she's named Alice after her mother who died. Like so many like psychological traumas going on in this family. So Theodore Roosevelt, we, ru- we love him. Because, here are other reasons we love him. We love him because uh, when the Spanish-American War breaks out, he was pro-war. He quits his job to go fight. How, how great would it be if any politician who voted for war had to quit their job and go fight? You know, like what, what, how would that change the way we support wars? They never do that. They vote for the war and then they stay home and, you know, make rich selling war materials or something. Roosevelt goes fight, but he's also, he's the fightingest guy ever. He wants to fight everybody. He's constantly trying to get the United States to win wars. And is that really good? Like, is it really good that he was trying to constantly pick wars? Not when he's president, but when he's not president, you know? So uh, he's very pugilistic. In some ways, he is more Trumpian than anybody realizes in the way he, he taught the bellicosity and the way he gets up and starts yelling and riles people up. Uh, someone told me a story once that he punched a man on stage at a debate once. Like that's insane. That's insane. So Teddy Roosevelt, it's like, there's all these charismatic things that you love and you hear about and you really, it's so hard not to love him, but he's also insane. And if he existed today, half of us would hate him and think he was terrifying. So really interesting guy. But the reason he's important in terms of what he changed, he's the first progressive president. That's really the important thing. And why is he progressive? Because we've been talking about, you need to change with the times or bad things are going to happen. And he sees the divide between rich and poor getting crazy. He sees the slums. He sees how people are being treated. And he realizes that if he doesn't address this, you know, the, the, the people will rise <laughs> and tear everything down, you know? So he's a progressive as an act of preservation for his class and his wealth and all that. And other rich people don't get it. They don't want to share the wealth. They, they think they can just hold on to it forever. He's like, no, no, we need to do something to address this or are they going to come and take it? And that's kind of where his progressivism is for him. And, and he starts uh, an era that lasts basically for 20 years of progressivism. Him, he's followed by Taft. We don't think of Taft as progressive, but he's more progressive than a lot of other guys at that point. And then Wilson, who is very progressive. Uh, like Taft is the one who gets an amendment passed to create an income tax that didn't exist before then. Like, you know, you don't write off Taft and his progressive credentials just because he's not, you know, Wilson or Teddy uh, or FDR. Uh, he's, he's still a pretty progressive guy. Um, so he starts a 20 year progressive era where you get all these laws and all these changes. You know, you get trust busting. Companies are really starting to be taken on. We're trying to take the power away from them. You get uh, income tax. So now, uh, 
the government's funded more equitably, uh, whether before it was all like I mentioned tariffs, you know, and who do, who pays the most in tariffs really that that affects poor Americans more than rich Americans, you know? Yeah. So that's where his stamp is, is by a fluke because someone killed William McKinley, some crazy person killed William McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt was in the vice presidency. He was put in the vice presidency because ne- vice presidents never become anything. It was done to kill his career and get him out of the way. They, he was governor of New York and he was annoying the people in New York. So they made <laughs> moved him to vice president. Now he's president and he can unleash uh, progressive populism. And that leads to 20 years of progressive reform. Yeah. Do you know the story of, of San Juan Hill? I've, I've heard that, you know, Again, it was a story I was taught as a child in school and, you know, Teddy Roosevelt led the charge and we won. But I've also heard sort of uh, different perspectives that say that he was actually kind of maybe reckless. Like if, if you actually looked at the actions that day, he actually may have gotten a lot of his men killed and sort of was fortunate that it came out the way it did. But. I don't know if there's yeah. any truth to that. The way you were saying like how he was kind of reckless and, you know, like I, yeah. that story kind of dinged in my mind. I was like, you know, maybe that was an early indicator that he really was, uh, you know, wild as hell, you know? Yeah. He, uh, he I, so as I recall, of, and, and here's the thing is you'll, you'll read different things that will be more or less critical of him. You know, I remember seeing some accounts that are more critical, some accounts that were like, oh my God, he's a hero. Um, he, he, in the battle at San Juan Hill, this is a battle where, um, the United States is, is invaded Cuba to take it from the Spanish and the Spanish are holed up in this one port. And there's these two hills that overlook the port. And if we can take those hills, we can put cannons on them and then we can blow up the Spanish Navy and the town will have to surrender. So this is the whole game. The whole game is capture these two hills. And the Americans come up and they start attacking up the hills. Uh, the Spanish are pretty well fortified though. And uh, Teddy and his Rough Riders get to one of the hills and there's all these army regulators kind of hiding in the grass because they're like, we don't want to go up there. Like, they're going to kill us. And crazy Teddy is like, I'm going to go. Let's go. And he starts running up and he kind of shames everybody into going with him. And they charge up the hill and, you know, they capture the hill. Uh, if I remember right, by the time they get to the top, like it, it might have been abandoned. Like the, Mex- the, the Spanish might have fled before he did. I can't remember if they were still there or not. And Teddy's like, all right, let's go capture the next hill and let's go. And he starts running and he runs like, I don't know, 100 feet or 100 yards or something before he realizes nobody's following him. (laughs) 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 And he's like, oh, damn it. And he runs back and he's like, follow me. And then they go again. And, you know, they capture a second hill. Now, it's not like Teddy won that battle. He, he was leading a charge. So you could certainly make the argument people died because he made them charge. Right. <laughs> he made them attack. Somebody had to do it. Um, I guess you could have just Fair kept enough. shooting up the hill until the Spaniards left. Uh, so, you know, I'm kind of that's where I am. I might not have all the information, though. So I, that's an area where I'd encourage more more reading for yeah, sure. For sure. Uh, all these areas, you know, it's, it's all based on what I've read. I might not be right. Everybody go read more stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. By, by no, you know, I encourage everybody should go out and, and do their own reading on these things. The other thing that stood out for me that I'm very thankful to him for, I don't know what sparked it or whatever, but I'm so happy that he, you know, did the uh, make created the national park system. Absolutely. Um, you know, Absolutely. Su- super big for that. The one other story about him that kind of always sticks out is, is uh, the, t- I'm, 
again, it could not be a true story, but he was giving a speech and he got shot yeah. Yeah. in the chest. And I yes. guess he had something in his pocket that maybe absorbed the, the impact mostly, but like continued giving the speech after getting shot in the chest, which he was... He was on his way to give a speech okay. when someone shoots him in the chest and the folded speech is what slows the bullet. And, and then he's, and he asks, he like looks at like the blood and he's like, you know what? I've been in war. I, I can, I can, I can walk around with this for a little bit. And then he goes to the area and he stands up and he gives his speech and he holds up like this speech with a bullet in it. And he gives a speech with a bullet inside him. And, and then he goes to the hospital. Uh, and if I, if I remember right, I want to say that happened during like the 1912 presidential campaign. Yeah. Like he's running for reelection, uh, after being out of office and it's the, like the last week, like this was the October surprise of that election is the assass attempted assassination of Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and yeah, the, 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 these are like, like I said, there's so many stories about him. He's so larger than yeah. life that you're like, oh man, this guy's, this is amazing. He's so fun. But but then there's all the other stories we don't tell as much about him that make him look insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. As moving on from from Teddy, you know, you mentioned uh, Taft and uh, Woodrow Wilson. After mm -hmm. Wilson, you know, well, you know, he's starting to deal with World War One, um, and then the next yep. ones I feel like Warren G. Harding, Calvin Coolidge, Hoover. I feel like that group. I don't know. The only thing I really know about that group is that they. I think they were somewhat corrupt and uh, pro and prohibition. <laughs> that, prohibition from, from that era. Yeah. So what's interesting about this group? This is in my podcast where I am right now. If you picked up the latest episode, I think uh, the episode on Coolidge might come out tomorrow. Nice. Um, but we're recording this on what day is today? We're recording this 13th. on Sunday, November thirteenth. Uh, I think maybe it just came out. Um, so this group is uh, kind of the conservative strike back is this group. You know, you have 20 years of progressives and then you get Warren Harding elected and he starts to uh, run a more progressive playbook. He dies in office. Calvin and Coolidge follows that progressive. Play, uh, that, I'm sorry, conservative playbook, conservative playbook. And then he gets replaced by Hoover after he steps aside. Hoover was his secretary of commerce. And Hoover tries to run a more progressive playbook. Now, what's happening during this time? You mentioned prohibition. I was amazed how little any of the presidents were involved in prohibition. It was something that would be part of party platforms. Um, but like Wilson wasn't really involved in getting it passed. Uh, well, also, like, it's so weird. There were a lot of uh, constitutional amendments that happened on Wilson's presidency that he had nothing to do with. Women got the right to vote. He, he didn't like he supported that very late in the game after opposing it most of his presidency. Uh, the direct election of senators is passed. Before that, senators were generally still picked by their state um, assemblies, you know. So you had a lot of major changes. And and this is a reactionary period ag against some of these changes. For example, tax. Uh, a big thing is tax rate changes. Uh, I mentioned half passed the first income tax. World War One happens. Wilson raises taxes to pay for the war. At the end of World War One, the richest Americans, any Americans paying more than two hundred, making more than two hundred thousand dollars a year in nineteen, you know, seventeen dollars, is paying like seventy five percent taxes on any dollar past two hundred thousand. You know, really high tax. Like that's that's compared to today astronomical and the uh, lowest paying Americans are paying like 1.5% and or 4%. 
And so uh, Harding and Coolidge start rapidly lowering that tax bracket. It's so crazy. They uh, put in charge of the treasury the second richest man in America, um, a guy who owns a bank that's still around. I can't. Oh, I'm blanking on his name. It might have been Mellon, uh, which still exists. If It might ring a bell. Mellon Bank. Uh, and the super rich guy, he's secretary of treasury. And he's like, you know what? We'll, we'll make more money if we lower taxes on rich people. <laughs> he basically, right. like, this is the start of like modern conservative thought in terms of trickle down economics. Yeah. And, and we'll raise tariffs, you know, and he starts re putting, trying to set the clock back. Let's, let's start taking apart some of this regulation stuff. Uh, for example, Coolidge stops hiring meat inspectors, you know, and he dismantles the, the railroad oversight people, you know, like they start trying to roll this stuff back. And for 20 years, you know, when you have uh, absolutely no controls on kind of what things are, are happening, the economy can really start going crazy. Good, like good. So it starts yeah. booming at the roaring 20s. And then it all crashes right after uh, Calvin Coolidge leaves. Calvin Coolidge is the biggest, like, don't do anything president ever. One of his quotes was, if you see... 10 problems coming down the road, nine will probably go into the ditch on their own. Don't worry about it. You know? And yeah, I know, I know. It's like, wait, what? (laughs) Not the kind of leadership I would want. (laughs) Exactly. One of his other mantras, don't do anything yourself that someone else can do for you. Like (laughs) he was just the, the personification of the, the government, the government that governs best is the government that governs least. And after he leaves office, you have the great depression. Um, And the, the irony about the great depression, Hoover, is Hoover was famous for leading relief efforts during World War One and after World War One, food relief efforts. Like he he kept millions of Europeans fed with a charity and philanthropy he did. And he led the reaction to this great flood on the Mississippi River uh, during uh, Coolidge's presidency when he's Secretary of Commerce. So when, when people elect Hoover, nobody knows the Great Depression's coming, but if you had told him it was coming, they probably would have elected Hoover and been like, he's the one guy who can save us. Right. And he tries, he tries all these progressive things, but they're all basically half measures. He doesn't go far enough. And so he ends up getting blamed for it. He makes some other mistakes. He doesn't know how to play the political game and work with Congress very well. And that's what sets up FDR and the second progressive age, which will last like another 20 years. So Harding, Coolidge Hoover is kind of this interregnum of reactionary rollback, a reactionary conservative rollback that leads to like a really good economy for a decade and then the Great Depression for a decade. And then you again flip the switch toward the progressive uh, side of the country. You talked about corruption. Warren Harding's the one who's known for corruption. Okay. He wasn't himself corrupt, but he hired a lot of friends who were, uh, you know, if you, you probably like read Teapot Dome Scandal when you were a kid, which was basically his interior secretary uh, giving drilling rights to a company for huge personal cash payments uh, to government land. So he's like selling oil to companies for big kickbacks. The bigger scandal in my mind was the Veterans Bureau scandal. We talked earlier about veterans and taking care of them. After World War One, they created the Veterans Bureau, which was supposed to uh, help the veterans with ailments, get some supplies, some get a medical supplies, maybe build some hospitals, stuff like that. The guy in charge of this, though, he decides, you know what? If somebody wants to build a hospital for veterans and I'm trying to decide who should build it, I'm going to hire whoever gives me the most money. And you know what? <laughs> I, I, I feel like I have a lot of medical supplies for veterans. Like they probably don't need all that. Who wants to buy them from me? 
Who wants to buy all these medical supplies from me? Yeah, this guy just like fleeces the government and the veterans. It's like the most evil thing you could do. Getting rich by, by selling stuff and, and profiting off the suffering of veterans. So those two things happen. Harding wasn't involved in either. He was horrified by both. But he unfortunately like died before he could really uh, vindicate himself with the public. Mm. And, and then Coolidge just steps as far away from him as possible. Coolidge wasn't corrupt. Hoover wasn't corrupt. But you did have a lot of corrupt things under Harding uh, during that age. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you you, you talked about the the tw- the twenty or thirty years of progressivism, and then you know this group coming through and in this pendulum swinging back the other way with the conservatism. Mm-hmm. And I think during this time, maybe I hope I'm not getting my dates too out of whack. But this deregulation, when you talked about getting rid of like the 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 meat inspectors i think that's Mm -hmm. what led to like the hell's kitchen kind of era and like uh wasn't there a huge breakout about about some meat being contaminated like later after all the deregulation occurred i'm not sure about what maybe making this up completely as he fired that but there was like when the when it was put in place by teddy roosevelt in the first place yeah uh, Teddy Roosevelt passed all this stuff, meat inspection, in response to a book that was looking at the meat factories and just how unsanitary they were. Uh, the Jungle. The is, I Jungle. Think, the name I'm sorry. That's what I was trying to think yeah, of. So yeah, that was yeah. that was 20 years early. And that's what got this stuff passed in the first place. I see. I see. Yeah. yeah. But my, I guess the, the other thing I was really kind of looking at there, too, is that um, – it seems like it, it harkens back to the very beginning of our conversation where it's talking where we were talking about democracy being something you constantly work at. If you yeah. have yeah. too long of a period of maybe extreme progressivism, maybe that's not the great thing. Maybe too long of a period of extreme conservatism is not so good of a thing. Maybe it is a good thing to kind of have them change off every few years or maybe not be so extreme would be nice as well. <laughs> um it just, yeah, it just depends. You know, you're trying different things and some things work, some things fail, you know, and just, so what are we trying today? Uh, are we trying things that are considered more progressive? Are we trying things that like that, that support the poorer classes? Are we trying things that support the richer classes? Which ideas that the other party, the other thing is when a party tries some ideas, it's very hard to admit your ideas were wrong. So you, you kind of do need the other party to come in and hopefully they only repeal the stuff that actually didn't work. Now, I feel like today, we're a little broken and, you know, each party is going to repeal anything they can from the other party, whether it's working or not. You know, they, they just yeah. like and they won't support anything the other party wants, no matter what the evidence is, because it's become too tribal. But you, you would hope in a healthy democracy, it is psychologically easier for another party to come in and say, OK, um, you know, Woodrow Wilson, you just segregated the government for the first time ever. That's not good. Let's repeal that. Let's let white and black people work together again, because that was stupid. You know, you, you things like that, you know, or, um, hey, may, may, maybe there were other ideas that people tried that it's just not quite working. Let's repeal. It. It's easier to yeah. be the other party and do that. And you and you hope that the other party really focuses on the things that are broken instead of just wholesale throw it all out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like people just get caught up and they think, uh, you know, unfortunately, there's always uh, there's this thing that I think exists called policy lag where, you know, you've got this period from where policy is put in place 
from when it actually down the road is is taking effect and 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 having an impact in the markets and in in the with the citizens and oftentimes like you know you have these you know successful flourishing times like the roaring 20s and you think it's because of maybe that the 20s were set up because of all this um all the policy that was passed during the 20s, but it may have actually been the policy that was set up leading into the 20s right. that created those right. circumstances for the 20s to be flourishing. And maybe yeah. the 20s policy is what actually created the Great Depression, you know? Absolutely. And so yeah. that's why I'm, th- that's why I say, I think it takes a little bit of, of balance between the two somehow, if we're going to stay in this, uh, in this two, two party sort of dichotomy that we're, that we're in it, yeah. uh, that we've been in forever, it seems like. Yeah. And the other thing is, uh, you know, <laughs> the economy is a complicated thing and it's impacted a lot by stuff the government has nothing to do with. <laughs> you know, sometimes it, it soars or fails because of things entirely out of the government's control, like the spread of mass production or the invention of the Internet or subprime housing. Mortgages. <laughs> you know, like uh, you sometimes. It's the government, like especially areas where it's really easy to point to is tariffs, especially because when you're raising or lowering tariffs, you're picking winners or losers for industries in the economy. And that is one of the most impactful things a government can do to have an immediate impact on the economy. Other things that takes longer, like there's more of a lag on other things, you know, uh, or, or they might be things that don't affect economy. They just think it affect equality. And you think that's important, like your tax policy, you know, your, your tax policy is probably not going to really impact the government uh, or the economy too much, how much you're taxing wealthy people versus poor people. But it will impact how much money those people have to spend on things and how you're uh, and what you're able to afford as a government, what programs you can support. And so it's more like that. Those policies are more kind of like, how are we creating a more just or equitable society? And what do we consider a just society? I think the two parties disagree, you know, on that and equitable. They probably disagree on what equitable is, you know, Um, like one party might say equitable is everybody should be taxed the same rate. And the other party might say equitable is everybody should have the same economic opportunities for success, you know, or everybody should be able to put food on their plate. That's equitable. So, you know, it's funny. Everyone's chasing just and equitable. They just define them differently. Yeah, it's it's and, that, and that's uh, sort of where we've where we've broken into. I think today we've devolved a little bit to where we're no longer we no longer have the common ground of even terminology that we can base right. the conversation to have off oh of God, anymore. Yeah. So yep. it's it's become yep. much more complicated even than than it used to be. Yeah. Um, let's see. We were coming up on. I think two, two, two more very interesting presidents uh, going into World War II uh, with Franklin and Roosevelt and, and Harry Truman. Franklin Roosevelt, somebody that's it's, uh, related to, to Teddy, I think, was a distant yeah. cousin or something along those lines. Yeah, I want to say Eleanor was Teddy Roosevelt's niece, I think. And I just remember, I know that at the wedding, Teddy Roosevelt shows up at Franklin's wedding to Eleanor and he slaps Franklin on the side and says, way to keep the name in the family. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So there's my story for you about that. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I think uh, the stories that have always really caught me, uh, that have always impressed, I don't know if it's impressed, but I found interesting have been the conversations and his relationship with, uh, with Churchill. 
Um, you know, because Churchill, I always feel like was this revered figure for so long. But mm-hmm. as I've as I've read more, it really feels like Franklin Roosevelt was like this cool guy that Churchill wanted to be best friends with. And the story that always kind of culminates this to me or really, you know, highlights this is the story around when Churchill and and Roosevelt met with Stalin at, at Yalta. And mm-hmm. they're they're like, I guess the story kind of goes like uh, that Churchill, they all get there and Churchill keeps hitting up Roosevelt wanting to talk about what they're going to have, what's their strategy going to be for the meeting with Stalin to get him to join their side in the war. Yeah. And, and he keeps bugging him throughout the day. And finally they get to the meeting and, you know, they're sitting at the table and he basically like makes fun of, of, of Churchill, how he looks. He's like, isn't he a funny, stupid looking dude, you know, funny looking guy. And, and Stalin laughs, they smoke cigars and drink whiskey and they're best buds. And they're all in the war together after that. But just kind of like that dichotomy of their relationship has always been very interesting between such, such important world leaders. Yeah. They, um, you know, they were two guys who realized friendship can go a long way. And it's really important to be friends with influential people. And so they wanted to be friends with each other. And, and they saw each other as, as pivotal to their futures. Now, when it came to Stalin, Churchill, you know, strategically is like, I don't want to be Stalin's friend. Stalin scares the hell out of me. I'm really close to him. I can see him right over there across the river, you know, across the, <laughs> the English Channel. He's just right. over in Eastern Europe. And he he's scary to me. I don't like him. And Roosevelt was like, let's see if we can have a friendly relationship so we can win this war and have a nice peace afterwards. You know, so that you choose who you want to be friends with and then you do everything you can to kiss the ass of your friends and politics and and, you know, tweak your enemies. And uh, so Roosevelt tweaking Churchill was his way to ingratiate himself with Stalin. But it in no way meant that he didn't have a great relationship with Churchill. Also, like Roosevelt and Churchill were uh, very tight and, and Churchill was super upset and, and concerned when Roosevelt died because, you know, he, he had spent so much equity building that relationship with the president of the United States. And now the guy's dead. And now you have Truman and you're like, OK, shit, uh, I need to build a relationship with Truman ASAP because I want to be able to influence him. And it's going to be a lot easier if he likes me. And if you trust me, you know, so, yeah, these relationships, the power players and how they interact with each other and what they think of each other uh, and and who they pick to be their foils and who they pick to be their friends. You know, like uh, Churchill, you might say early in his career, uh, fairly early on, um, before many other people in, in England had, he picked Hitler as his foil. Hitler's crazy. That guy's insane. He's our enemy. We shouldn't be his friend, you know. And he was proven right when World War II came around. And that's how he became prime minister. So, of course, he would then be very much like he's not just looking at his friends, but he's like, okay, who are my who's the next enemy? And let me make sure that I'm clearly calling them out as the enemy. That's important for my political future to be right about who the enemies are. And then let me try to start building a coalition against that enemy. I, I think one thing Churchill knew is it's a lot easier to unify people uh, against an enemy, you know, than than with anything else. People, it's the most, sadly, crazily, it's like one of the most unifying things you can have is an enemy that you all hate together. Um, One one thing, like look at world history. 
and the history of revolutions. Whenever there's a revolution in the country, it's because a group of different people has temporarily come together because they hate the monarch. And that's the enemy or whoever the leader is. The second that leader is gone, that group of people, they don't have someone to hate together anymore. They start fighting each other. It happens every single time, you know. So as World War II is ending, Churchill is sitting there. He's like, OK, I've gotten buddy buddy with the Americans. We've got this coalition. We just won World War II. Hitler's about to be gone. I need a new enemy. <laughs> it's going to be Stalin, you know. And, and he was right there, too, because Stalin was batshit crazy. One of the weird things about Stalin, too, I was shocked by this when I read books. And I'm right now I'm reading about Eisenhower. So we're coming up on on the end of my presidential knowledge, as I haven't done research beyond him yet until modern days would have lived through. But uh, in each of these biographies, uh, Roosevelt, um, uh, Eisenhower and uh, shoot Truman, whenever they meet Stalin, they all say the same thing. Stalin was such a nice guy. He was so grandfatherly. He gave off this grandfatherly vibe. He cares so much about his people. Stalin is a guy who kills millions of his own people. Yeah. Like he, he is a genocidal maniac, but he knows how to play this game of making friends. Also, you know, he didn't become the leader by killing people. I mean, he kind of did. He became the leader by killing people, but he also became the leader by being friends and putting on a show. Yeah. And so when all these people meet him, they're like, uh, everyone's just like, yeah, he's very grandfather. He's like a grandfather to the Russian people. He cares about them so much. It's really weird. <laughs> it's really weird to keep reading this over and over again and be like, that guy's going to kill millions of his own people. What are you people smoking? Yeah. Yeah. What was that transition like for in the middle of, of the war there with from Roosevelt to Truman? Like, mm. What what was that transition like? Because didn't people kind of see Truman as a weak, as a weak leader potentially? Yeah, uh, they saw him. Truman had initially gotten elected with the help of a political machine in Missouri, and he had barely won re-election in 1940. So he was kind of viewed as a, a bit of a crony to that machine, not necessarily super, super strong, not necessarily like, like he he was just kind of a bit of an unknown. Certainly. Nobody thought that he stacked up to FDR. Right. Like nobody. I mean, FDR didn't even support him in his 1940 reelection bid. It's kind of we like I it's kind of weird how he even became vice president. And he was involved in none of the discussions. He was totally like left out of it. So when FDR dies and Truman takes over, like he has to dive in. And and yeah, just nobody knows what they're getting. Everybody's concerned. FDR has gotten us this far. He's gotten us out of the depression. He's won the war. But OK, who's going to win the peace? OK, who's going to like coming out of war is really rough economically. Yeah. Who's going to make sure we weather that? OK, um, there were a lot of major problems like right there. And now we have Truman. None of us voted for Truman. <laughs> you know, he, nobody cares about the vice president, really. Um, what's going to happen? And so luckily, Truman's a hardworking guy who hits the books and he just starts reading, 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 getting up to speed all that he can. He's, he's pretty quickly told about this atom bomb, this crazy thing. And he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> and he decides to use it you know, against the Japanese. And he decides to tell his allies about the atomic bomb that we have. Um, and he tells the Soviets about the atomic bomb that we have. And he is just very quickly trying to build these relationships. Also, he's got to build a relationship, you know, with uh, Churchill. He can, can he build a relationship with Stalin? How is he going to build, you know, the new world order? And it, it was a huge challenge dumped on his lap that he had to weather. Mm. 
was the creation of the of the atomic bomb was the Manhattan Project was that going on under Truman or under Roosevelt? Roosevelt. It was basically already done when when Truman becomes president. Like, you know, they're like, hey, we're. I think they they complete their first successful test of a bomb shortly after he becomes president. Uh, but this thing had, in fact, this is crazy. So before he's even vice president, he's a senator. And he's a senator and he's on this committee. He forms a committee basically to look for waste in the war because, you know, one, one of the ways to win a war, one of the ways to lose a war is to be uh, inefficient with your materials. So you're trying to find waste. Where are we being wasteful in ship construction? Where are we being wasteful in this, that or the other? And as he's in charge of this committee, uh, reports start coming to him of all these resources being gobbled up by this mysterious project called the Manhattan Project. And he reaches out to the Secretary of War and he's like, hey, I, I see all this stuff being consumed. I don't see any output for it. What is this? And the Secretary of War is, simply replies like, it's important. I can't tell you. And he like, and please back off. And he backs off. And then when he becomes president, he finds out what the secret project was. And he's like, oh, <laughs> I understand now. Wow. You know, so that was his awareness. His awareness was he knew there was this thing out there that was consuming all this money, a ton of money, a ton of resources, this black hole. And and the, and he knew it was important because the army had told him, just trust us. It's important. Please don't ask any more questions. It's a secret. And he said, OK. And then he became president. He found it out. And um yeah, that, that that's kind of that that answer. And was do you would, did he do anything with policy during this time that you know because I think I think I read that his background was in finance. Did he, did he do any policies that kind of helped keep us from having uh you know going into a reset or having economic difficulties? Because after the war, it was kind of we went into a period of of. Economic yeah. growth, I think, uh, for 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 several years, there was there was a hiccup and then a growth, which is also what happened after World War One. It's mm. really interesting. Wars, uh, especially World Wars, especially World Wars, where we're selling stuff to other countries. If there's a war where we get to sell stuff to someone else, really good for the economy. Yeah, really good, really good. Uh, after the war, really tough. There, there's going to be a painful. The soldiers are coming back. How do we get them jobs? What the hell are we doing? You know, right. and then after that sorts itself out, there's a boom again. So like that's the roaring 20s. World War One, big boom. After war, uh, a couple of years of really sharp recession and then roaring 20s. After World War Two, uh, World War Two, big boom. Afterwards, uh, a, a small recession, but it does weather it pretty well. And there's things like the GI Bill to help out, to help soldiers get back. You know, so there's a lot more stuff in place. Uh, and then, and then, you know, 50s, you get you get a nice little boom. Yeah. Um, his background was really interesting. He he got into politics really late, Harry Truman. Like, I think he was 40 before he ever ran for office or entered politics. Wow. He was a farmer growing up. He, he fought in World War One. Uh, he tried to own like a clothing store with a war buddy after World War One. It went out of business during that brief little blip. You know, I mentioned that downturn after World War One. He got caught up in that. Um, and uh, then he becomes a politician later in life. And he he he's not like a super educated guy. So he's not like a financial wizard or anything, but he is looking for, like I mentioned, that committee. He's looking for waste in the government. He's looking for are we spending our money efficiently, wisely, judiciously? And uh, as the government comes out of 
World War Two, you, and you know you're starting to have struggles there. He does get involved in some very big issues. You you have some large uh, strikes that he gets involved in. Um, I'm trying to remember which industry it is. I think it's the rail industry. I think. See, the rail or coal. Those are the two big ones, rail and coal. And the issue is that the uh, workers in the industry are the, the during the war. That's usually a great time for labor to make some advances because you have all these guys being sent off. So management can't fire you because there's no one else to hire, you know. Uh, so that's a great time to be like, I want more money and I want to work fewer hours. And, and you get that. You get that. You're going to get that during a big war like that. And then after a war, management's going to be like, I'm cutting your pay and I'm increasing your hours. And, and people don't like that, you know. So after World War II, this happens in all these industries. And the laborers are like, well, here, like they put out a proposal that seems reasonable and the owners refuse to budge, which is usually how these things play out. And uh, Truman threatens to just seize either all the railroads or all the mines and put the government in charge and give the employees everything they want. And he actually goes out. It's this crazy moment. I'm so sad that things weren't recorded back then like they are today. <laughs> he, he goes out to give a speech before Congress. He's standing at the podium and he announces like, I uh, approve the seizing of, of these businesses so that the government can run it and keep them running and, and to avoid a strike because there's going to be a strike otherwise. And if you have a strike, a coal strike or a rail strike, those are huge bad news that affects everybody. So it's like, I'm going to do this to avoid the strike. I'm coming in on the side of labor. And uh, right as he says that, the thing is, they're still negotiating, like his, his administration still for negotiating. While he's giving the speech, the negotiators reach a compromise and somebody runs up to him on the podium and gives him a paper. And right after he says, I'm going to seize all this stuff, he looks at the and he's like, the ownership has given in to the uh, uh, laborers. The strike is avoided. All this is averted. Like, what an amazing moment. <laughs> you give a speech saying, I'm going to seize this stuff to avoid the strike. Oh! Ownership has, has uh, given everything we want. <laughs> Avoided. Never mind. It all worked. <laughs> it all worked. Yeah. Just just a crazy timing uh, thing. So so these are some of the things he's doing afterwards to try to take care of the economy. When, when these big strikes loom of management wanting to cut wages, raise hours back and labor saying no, and you're going to have a strike. He, he picks a side and, and he tries to get involved and uh, and tries to have a good effect. It's amazing, you know. We've we've uh, we've gotten up to Truman here at the end of of World War II, and so many. Even though I think for many people this time period, especially early early on, you know, in the in the eighteen hundreds, you know, is such a distant time period for people today. But yeah. even even yeah. just discussing this and thinking about it, you know, it's not that many generations ago, mm. and a lot of the same issues. You know, obviously things are very different today, but a lot of the right. same issues, it's economy, it's, it's, yeah. um, it's, it's unfortunately now, you know, I'm, I'm, I've never in my life and I can remember growing up in the eighties and Russia was the big bad boogeyman and, and all right. that, but I don't think I've ever been at a time where I've really been concerned about a, a nuclear weapon that might be used, but, you know, to have that even in the discussion these days, um, I think it's important for people to go back and, you know, revisit, you know, the history of having already done some of these things and see what those results were and, you know, maybe advise some caution on how we proceed moving forward for ourselves, you know, even. Yeah, absolutely. There's lessons in history. You just got to look for them. 
Well, I uh, want to be uh, cautious of your time, um, but <laughs> I have because I've taken up a pretty good bit of it here today. I would um, I would love to have you back on week to, to chat about some others. I'm I'm you know, I think we've we've cut it at an interesting place here because really with Eisenhower leads in the JFK and from there it it all sorts is is, is like the second half of of our history uh, is is almost how i feel like um mm-hmm. so i think it's a good a good po- place to pause um i'd love to have you come back on because this has been a really fun conversation for me for sure thanks i would love to uh we'll have to wait a couple years for me to read all that history <laughs> and once, <laughs> once i have something to talk about i'd love to come back on oh, we can we can always uh we can always come on and just uh shoot shoot it shoot the shit so yeah. to speak um you know yeah. i think obviously um i'm not an expert on any of this but i find it deeply fascinating uh, jfk's you know and the whole even the uh, there's so much around that and his brother and marilyn and and all mm-hmm. that and leading into nixon such a fascinating character i think as well um and then, and then most of, yeah i mean <laughs> such a crazy character and then and then obviously most of the other stuff um from reagan on at least um I've been around for so (laughs) (laughs) I have some some perspective on it Um, but yeah amazing conversation man really enjoyed it Um, before you go today tell people where they can check out your podcast and follow you on online as well yeah, uh, my podcast is Abridged Presidential Histories. You can search it on any podcast platform or Google it and find it. Uh, like I was saying earlier, each episode is 60 minutes or less on the setbacks, successes and scandals of, of each president in order. Uh, I, I also about halfway through around James Buchanan, I start interviewing historians. So oh, for wow. subjects that deserve a deeper dive, I'll bring a historian on and I'll talk to them and, and get that deeper perspective. Um you can you can find me all those places. I'm also uh, I am on Twitter at APH Podcast. By the time this broadcast, I don't know if Twitter will cease to exist. That platform <laughs> seems to be in the in the middle of a glorious you know just just meltdown explosion right now. Uh, but that's a, another place you can find me. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Yeah, appreciate it. Well, thank you again so much. And uh, yeah, have a good day.